0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Black in Science. Before we dive in, there are a few disclaimers I'd like to make. So first things first, these episodes are recorded virtually from the comfort of our own homes, so you may hear some ambient noises like a dog barking in the background or a train going by, and these are all uncontrollable factors of the environments we live in. So please try your best to do what I do and just tune them out. Secondly, these interviews are recorded utilizing modern-day technology, which can have the occasional glitch, so you may hear some lag either in my responses or that of the guests I'm talking to. But I promise you they do not take away from the overall story being shared. So without further ado, a list get started. On today's episode, I spoke with the phenomenal Dr. Jermaine Davis, who currently works as an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Cancer Biology at Meharry Medical College. Throughout the interview, Dr. Davis discusses his childhood and undergraduate experience at multiple institutions, the dissertation work he did for his PhD in Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics from the University of Pennsylvania, and his lab's current research surrounding health disparities related to Alzheimer's and breast cancer in the Black community. Alright you guys, get ready for a real conversation because Dr. Davis brings his true and authentic self to this interview. Not only does he share such great insights into his experience as a black man in his chosen field, but he also takes the time to advocate for health equity, community outreach, and explicit science communication. So with that being said, let's get into it. All right, so welcome to Black in Science, Dr. Davis. Thank you so much for joining me today. So to start things off, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us your name, where you're currently located, and where you grew up.
1: Well, thank you, Jasmine. I'm honored to be here. So thank you for reaching out and um, giving me this opportunity to talk with you. I'm Jermaine Davis. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Cancer Biology at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, um, I've been here for ooh, quite a few quite a few years now. Um, but I actually grew up in the north, um, in New York, in um, the suburbs of New York or on Long Island.
0: Okay, and how was growing up there for you?
1: It was surreal in a sense. It was it was different. It was um, I, I only realized that because. I think it might have been an anomaly, so to speak, because it was very, very diverse. Uh, The high school I went to was phenomenal, I believe, because it was just a great experience overall. Um, We we had um, a really great kind of community within a community. I had a lot of high achieving friends, um, which I think Somewhat rubbed off on me in some ways, Um, but it was really interesting because in my high school, even though it was well diverse, it it transitioned through different, I guess, levels of diversity, right? And so for the first time, my graduating class, there were five out of 10, the top 10 were black, were African-American. So that was like, wow, right? Like completely an honor to be part of that cohort, so to speak but I actually shouldn't have been part of that graduating class. I actually doubled up and graduated a year early, but it was great because I'm still friends with most, a lot of them today.
0: Oh, beautiful. So to rewind a little bit, what got you started in the sciences? Were you always intrigued or was there a specific person or experience that kind of got you going?
1: So I had always naturally done well in math, even in high school, I would do homework, watching TV, nine o'clock at night not really paying attention it just came very math just came very easy um, so that that made me lean towards science and engineering engineering was more prominent or maybe more common so it was something that I actually thought would be a good choice so I I actually now that I remember think back I actually wanted to do architecture when I was in high school but ended up Uh, After doing a one year at college, I ended up switching to do engineering. And so um, uh, I left New York to go to school in Philadelphia. And so um, I started like going the first year. Then after the first year, family couldn't afford it. So I became independent and did it on my own. So I worked full time and then went to school part time. And basically, I think the decision to study chemical engineering was because Um, Drexel, which was in Philadelphia, is in Philadelphia, was the only school offering kind of like evening classes toward engineering. Even though I I actually started at Temple, um, I ended up going to Drexel, working full time and going to school part time and then majored in chemical engineering. And so that's what I got an idea of science. But as I started to go through the curriculum or, you know, the program, really in my senior year, in my senior, my last semester, I decided I didn't want to be a chemical engineer. And that's because the typical engineer back then went out and worked in oil refineries. And, and it was kind of more really mass, you know, chemical production type, type um, positions that were out there. And in that kind of midway point in my senior year, I wanted to do research. I, I felt like bio, biomedical research was more aligned with what I wanted to kind of end up doing as a career. And unfortunately, Drexel didn't have a lot of opportunities. I did some independent study, but it wasn't enough, right? It was like, okay, you helped this graduate student do this, do that. And it was odd because I actually never took a biology course in college. I just all took chemistry. And so I got to my senior year and I said, well, I'm going to finish this degree, what next? So I ended up getting a job as a research technician at University of Pennsylvania through a, basically a friend. Right? A friend said that her boss was looking for someone to work in the lab and she she and and particularly she wanted an African-American male. And so my friend said, "Hey, apply." And so um. So I did, and I spoke to the mentor, uh, the, the, the faculty member. And so as it transpired, I guess, um, I considered a career in kind of science because I probably would have done, I actually enrolled in a master's program at Rutgers to do biochemical engineering. But at the same time, I got this position as a technician and the woman, Jackie Tanaka, who um, was a faculty member at Penn, enlightened me to the field of academia which was really odd because I never considered doing a PhD and she was the one who encouraged me. Um, I said, you know, I probably do a master's, but it was her who kind of gave me the idea, or as she likes to say, planted the seed for me to do a PhD and and actually do it in a a good institution and then have a big impact. I think she was the one that, um, and she wasn't a person of color, but she was the one that realized how important diversity was way back in uh, early 2000, um, and so she really cultivated this this kind of insight for me to pursue a career in academia. Uh, but what's we'll the? But what was even funnier was, as I think back, one of my nicknames and as a child was professor.
0: <laughs> How fitting. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, clearly, my family saw some of that back then, so, you know, I guess it it, it worked itself out.
0: <laughs> so, to bring it back a bit again, so when did you end up finishing high school?
1: Oh, Lord, you got to go all the way back there. 1990.
0: Okay, so you finished high school, went right to Temple after right that? Right to
1: Temple, um, dropped out for a year, then went back in 92 to Drexel, finished Drexel in 98, and then started Penn, graduate school at Penn in 2001.
0: Got it. It's so interesting that you said that Drexel didn't have the biomedical engineering program, which when I think of Drexel now, all I think of is engineering at that school. So it's interesting to see how it's grown.
1: They've they've always been an engineering school and that's why I went, you know, they actually used to be called Drexel Institute of Technology, Um, but they diversified and became Drexel University. So I knew engineering was, was it was a good place for engineering, but the integration in biomedical sciences wasn't there. It developed more over time. And so slowly, probably just after I left, is when it started to integrate more of the biomedical research into the engineering engineering departments.
0: Of course. Right after you. That's yes. it. That's it.
1: <laughs> but I but I enjoyed it for the most part. I enjoyed I, I definitely enjoyed the curriculum and the program and glad I did chemical engineering.
0: Mm-hmm. And what was your job while you were working full-time and then going to school? Was it science or engineering related? It was
1: not. I worked in the bank in the hood of North Philadelphia. <laughs>
0: oh, Lord, okay.
1: <laughs> that was an experience in and of itself. So I worked there as, as a bank teller. Um, so it was a, a, a very learned experience because of the professionalism and interacting with people some of the things that I've learned through that position was being in, in a community with limited resources and also the the friendliness of the people and and how they and how they perceive you and how you perceive them. Like so I learned a lot of people dynamics by believe it or not, by working at that at that institute at that bank. Um, I, I actually like I, I owe a lot to that experience because it taught me a lot. One of the other great aspects to that experience was uh, going to the barbershop, which was just basically across the street. I like to bring that up because when I quit the job, I told my barber, I said, hey, George, Friday is my last day. He said, what you're gonna do? And I said, I'm going back to school full time. And he was like, wow. He was like so impressed. Years later, I kept going. So maybe about a few years later he says, you know, I never forgot when you said that. And he said that um he sold his barbershop and went back to school to get his nursing license.
0: <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. That is awesome. Awesome here.
1: So um so and he he would always write inspirational quotes on his on the board in the barbershop. So he he also showed me how interacting with community was an important part of, of life itself, right?
0: Of life and science. Oh yeah,
1: exactly. Mm -hmm. Of just, of just human nature, just being together, living together as one. So.
0: (laughs) Precisely. So how long were your research tech before you went to grad school?
1: Um, I guess it would be two years. Well, two years at Penn. I did one year as a food lab tech that, was interesting as well but two years as a research lab tech and then I applied in and I applied to only a few schools but was was really interested in attending Penn and so luckily I got in.
0: Beautiful so when did you start your I'm assuming it was a PhD you said yes okay so when did you start your PhD at Penn and what program were you in?
1: I started in 2001 and I was in um the uh, biochemistry and molecular biophysics department (BMB). Cool.
0: And how was your overall experience in that
1: program? In that program, it was great. Uh, the program really took care of all the students. They made sure students were looked after for the most part. Made sure they finished and got what they got, the education that they needed. Um, so I felt comfortable in my department. Um, I found out that I, I was probably the, I think I was the fourth person of color to graduate from that program and the first black male. So it was it was interesting.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and that's wild to think that was in 2001 and you were the first. I
1: it, That was, well, I finished in 2007, but even today there are people from different institutions highlighting that they're the first black African-American to graduate from these programs. So it, it's sad, actually, right? It's just, and in, in some ways, people are find it hard to believe, but you, you can't really find that hard to believe, right, because mm-hmm. of the way things were.
0: Yeah. It's sad, but not surprising, I would say.
1: Right. Right.
0: So would you mind going over the dissertation work that you did for your PhD?
1: Yes, I wouldn't mind. So I, my, my passion actually has, has been in infectious diseases. And so when I, um, I guess when I joined graduate school, I wanted to understand how proteins folded. So I, you know, I had the kind of a question that brought me to graduate school and I wanted to learn structural biology, which I did. So I, I, I did those rotations, you know, you do rotations in different labs to get a feel of the lab and the research. And there was this one, then I was, also taking classes and there was this one faculty member that came to my to the class to give a lecture and he was in the division of infectious diseases and worked on tuberculosis and he just gave such a moving you know he had like this infectious energy of and he he gave like this really great lecture and so i was like i want to work with him Right. I was like, this, this is great. Like he made me think I was going to cure tuberculosis because of the way he was able to present and talk about his work. So I ended up working with him to study an enzyme system in in, in tuberculosis that we thought um, was important for TB to go into dormancy. And so I characterized this, how this enzyme worked, because we thought that if you know, TB actually forms in the lungs and it kind of becomes encapsulated into these granules where, where the oxygen is limited. And so we wanted to understand how certain genes that are implicated in DNA repair and synthesis were increased as they go into these granules. And so this enzyme system was one of the ones we targeted um, because it had different subunits that expressed at different times. So we thought it would be um, important to study because it might be a, a a a new target to treat tuberculosis
0: cool so you said your phd took six years so from 2001 to 2007.
1: five and a half years i finished i defended my thesis february 19, 2007. Awesome. I, I think that's one date that most people remember is when they defend.
0: <laughs> I was about to say you knew the exact date, the month, the year. I do,
1: I do, I do. It was, it was surreal because it was, it was such a great feeling because it's such a milestone. You know, it's just oh, like all that work, and because there are times where you think I'm not going to make it.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Definitely. And how was your experience at Penn in general? Since I know sometimes Ivy League institutions get a bad rep.
1: Yeah, and and, and for a reason. Um, my department was great. The Penn experience wasn't so great. I think that there were a lot of challenges that I couldn't ex- that I I thought were unfair in in different aspects. Um, but it also depends on the type of individual because you know everyone has different experiences and and i feel i have uh issues with fairness and and people taking advantage of black people and i felt that that was the environment and i've had and i've had some disagreements with a lot of the administration because we had a, a group of, of minority phd students and we got money for our group but they th- they felt like they can just, you know, they felt like all they had to do was just give us money for food and we'd be happy. And they wanted us to recruit. And we didn't want to do that. It's like, we didn't come here to recruit, hire someone to do that. Mm -hmm. So back then they couldn't appreciate a person like me telling them no, or what we're not going to do just because you want us to do it. So I got a bad rap, but you know, I still graduated, so I'm okay, but but it was an experience because it, it demonstrated some of the links some people would go to, to get what they want in a sense that they felt like, you know, basically it seemed, my impression was they felt like we owed them something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-mm, mm-mm, I'm not the one. <laughs> <laughs> so it was different for them. Mm-hmm. So I had, you know, I I was probably a little older, so I didn't. You know, so with me being the president of the group, I was like, oh, no, that's not what we're going to do. And they, it was hard for them to accept that, I believe.
0: Well, I'm sure it's basically like the here we gave you the bare minimum. So we expect everything you have to give in return. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then they then they said the, the, an actual comment from uh, someone who directed, I don't know, the, the graduate school or whatever was like, well, who wouldn't want a free trip to New Orleans? So it was that mentality right because when you hear of these kind of issues you know sometimes people's tone and the way they deliver things is not taken into account when you hear these kind of different sides of of the coin i was like i can get to new orleans on my own i don't need you
0: (laughs) yes they're basically like You are so lucky to be here. You're Mm. so lucky we're giving you this opportunity.
1: You're so lucky that white folks are trying to give you what, you know, give you stuff. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I'm not the one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you weren't. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, but there were some people who were, and they were okay with that. And they used that to try to divide us. I'm sure. As usually, as usual. I mean, that's the method, right?
0: Yeah. So after you finished your PhD, what did you do?
1: I did a postdoc at NIH or NCI, um, where I did crystallography. I actually did two. I did one for five years and one for one year. So in, 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 in NCI in Frederick, I, I worked on another infectious disease protein. Um, but I also uh, picked up a second project working on a cancer-related protein. And I used that to write a K grant. Um, so I got a K award on the work for that. And part of some feedback with the um, proposal was to look at doing some biology. So instead of doing straight crystallography, round it out with some biological function and relevance. And so I did my first postdoc with Alex Lodauer and NCI Frederick and I did my second postdoc with um, Kevin Gardner in, in, in NCI Bethesda. So it was interesting because Kevin Gardner was the first Black mentor I had, I guess. It was only for a year, but um, it was an interesting dynamic working in Bethesda. Um, I had a great time. And then that led me to my current position here at Meharry.
0: Awesome. Well, first, I didn't know postdocs could be that long.
1: Like so it, it varies i mean so it depends on the lab the um, job market and a, a variety of factors right so it was a time where there was a whole backlog of it was the first backlog of ph of, of postdocs right so there were several postdocs that were not finding jobs and so it became it, this is when it kind of first became really competitive to find an academic position because we had all these postdocs and not enough faculty jobs, and so all, and so some people didn't know what else to do, and so that's when people started saying, "Well, I'm going to do something else, um, look into policy, look into this, look into that," um, and there weren't a lot of opportunities for those for those careers even back then, and that's when I guess the academic and scientific community realized that you know we're producing all these PhDs, but. They can't go anywhere because there're no jobs, right? <laughs> so something has to be done. So yeah, so so postdocs have, on average, can be about five, four to five years, and because of that time frame, it was extended to six years, at least for me. And some people have different experiences um, and time frames, but it can be as short as three or one or two years, even depending on what you want to do afterwards, right? So um, if you continue in your same field and you don't have to learn a new system, it's easier for you to pick up, go into your postdoc and kind of pick up where you left off and hit the ground running. But if you switch fields and have to learn a whole new system, it may take longer than if you do stuff with mice. And so there's all these different factors. But five years is is pretty much a a good number. Uh, Less than that is even better, as, as long as there's some productivity.
0: Interesting, okay. At what point in your postdoc did you get your K grant?
1: At the very end. I was actually thinking of doing an MPH in international health. And I was like planning to apply. And then I got the notice I got the K award. So I said, okay, well, the decision has been made for me. (laughs) Um, And so that's when I said, okay, well, let me take it and do do what I got to do. And I'll pursue the academic path.
0: That's funny. I feel like that's happened twice when you were like, I'm going to go get my master's. Psych, just yeah. kidding. I want to yeah. do a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I, but there was something about international health that really attracted me because the protein I worked on in my postdoc was for the Shigella bacteria, which is which causes um, uh, basically um, bloody diarrhea. Which isn't a problem in the U.S., but in developing countries, and so a lot of children under five suffer from that and can die. And so there are no real, you know, treatments for it, right? And so I wanted to understand, from the international health and perspective, how this could affect so many children and ways to stop the kids from dying, right? Like it's like five five is like five is young, but if you don't have good water, it's hard for everyone, like. An adult can kind of clear it, but kids will have trouble. Kids in the elderly will have trouble, right? So, um, so that was something that I thought would be a really important problem to solve.
0: So after you got your K award, were you applying for faculty positions in multiple places? Were you looking to go to a specific institution?
1: I had always thought about HBCU. It boiled down to Meharry and University of Oklahoma. And during the interview, I was, they were driving me to the school and they said, that's where the tornado hit twice. I was like, okay, (laughs) that's fine. Um, So again, kind of the decision was made for me in a sense. And and so I, I think I was open to most places, but I always considered an HBCU because of the impact. I think that there's an amazing amount of talent that's overlooked at HBCUs. And so I hope in some way they're making an impact.
0: Mm, yes, you definitely are. Yeah. <laughs> so, would you mind talking about the research that your lab focuses on?
1: Sure, no problem. So, when I started, um, one of the questions I think I asked myself was, you know, why would someone hire another X ray crystallographer, uh, crystallographer or structural biologist? And um, I said, well, how can I make my research unique and develop a niche? And so coming to Meharry, um, I've, I've learned a lot about health disparities. And so, um, and clinical and translational research is big between Meharry and Vanderbilt. And so um, I started to think about some of the gaps in the, in the understanding of, of medicine, particularly genomic medicine, whenever we talk about genetic variants, the focus is on the gene and not on the protein. And it's the protein that actually does the functional work, right? So I, I, I thought I was crazy for a while, because I was like, well, why isn't there a link between genetics of disease, health disparities, and structural biology? Um, because you know the drugs are designed to target a protein Why can't health disparities be integrated into structural biology? And so that's basically what I developed my research program to do, because we wanna understand how uh, these genetic changes impact protein structure and function, which leads to um, such varied phenotypes. So we work on two primary projects. We have a breast cancer project as well as an Alzheimer's project. Um, The breast cancer project, has been a, a, a spinoff of my K award because these proteins that are in the DNA repair family have these domains that become mutated in cancer. Because there's so many different v- variants of these proteins, particularly like BRCA1, there aren't any distinct variants specific to um, a racial or ethnic group except for like the Ashkenazi Jews, right? Because those have been Uh, that group has had these hereditary mutations that um, increase the women's risk for developing breast cancer. Um, But we wanted to address the question of why so many Black women have such high mortality rates for breast cancer over other racial and ethnic groups. Um, So there isn't, even though we know that um, Black women and women of African ancestry have a higher rate of abnormal BRCA variants, there aren't any specific mutations that actually are distinctive for this racial ethnic group, right? So we're still studying that in the lens of health disparities, but also with the lens of precision medicine. But the Alzheimer's project we recently got funded for, um, which, is, which is a bit newer, we found that a, a genome-wide sequencing study has identified a protein that resides in the membrane of the cell that mutations of this protein increase the risk, specific mutations of this protein increase the risk of developing Alzheimer's in African-Americans. And so we wanna understand that mechanism so that we can design a therapeutic kind of intervention to reduce that risk.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I like how both your projects are black focused.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting, I mean, I think um, unapologetically black has been one of my favorite statements because I think depending on where you've been and grew up and what you've experienced, a lot of times you had to apologize in some way and that never sat right. And so now it's like, forget it. I'm I'm unapologetically black Um, and I'm rooting for everyone black.
0: (laughs) Yes, just like Issa Rae said,
1: Right, my motto. <laughs> because because the opposite has been in existence for so long, why can't I you know balance it with that? Right. Um, so, but these are I think some interesting topics that questions and challenges that need to be addressed. And so I I I, I like the idea and hope that we can make a, a really good contribution in both fields.
0: Yeah, me too. it's needed for sure
1: well i I think i think i've always wanted to do something to do like equity like health equity or equity in general Mm -hmm. um and so i think when you think about what your skill set is and what you want to contribute like this how this has kind of been that path for me and to throw another mix into it i actually got involved in community work because of covid so as a basic scientist, I partnered with a friend, a colleague here at Meharry, who studies community engagement and uh, vaccine hesitancy for HPV. But when the pandemic started, we noticed that there was a lot of shaming in social media for people who didn't want to get the vaccine. And it was horrible because it's like, don't tell me to inject something in my body just because you said something. Cause I was vaccine hesitant too, because I was like, this is crazy. Like, why should I do they this came up overnight? Like, are you serious? But the more I read and understood, the more I said, Okay, this it this is where it's at. So I'm vaccine boosted. But I also realized not all communities had access to that information and understanding. Mm-hmm. And so instead of shaming people we provided, we created a website to, to address people's concerns. Because, you know, there's some people who don't trust Fauci. There's some people who don't trust a lot of that stuff and their information source is different from, from mine. And so you can't shame them for not having this. Not everyone has an MD, PhD, lawyer or whatever on their speed dial. So you can't expect people will make the same decisions because they're not getting the same information. So we tried to normalize this through this website. Um, so we've been a, we've been getting into COVID, uh, community engagement work through COVID um, and it's been really interesting because you have to learn how to communicate with the public. You can't stand up there and tell people what not to do, right, because even me, I'm petty. If you tell me not to do something, <laughs> yeah, that's not gonna sit right with me. <laughs> Who are you to tell me, right? Mm-hmm. So we've come up with this um, social marketing campaign to address the concerns of people, particularly African-Americans and Latinx people to increase vaccine um, vaccination rates.
0: Oh, I love it. And it's like, yeah, you can't get mad, especially given the history of what has been done within healthcare to people of color, especially the black community. You cannot get mad you at cannot. this demographic for being hesitant
1: about anything. And you can't just you can't just wake up and think you can tell people what to do and they're going to do it.
0: No. No. At so, all. Yes. Yeah. I admit, I was the same way. When the vaccine came out, I'm like, I'm not going to be part of that first wave. I'm going to watch and see what happens.
1: Mm-hmm. You ain't going to get people- me. I'll let everybody else get it first.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> see what happens with them. Okay, scope exactly. it out. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. But it got to the point where it's like, I'm not going to risk this. I'm going to go and get it.
0: Exactly. So. And you, yes, you admitted that you had the knowledge and the background to understand the research and the work, work that went into it, which is a right. privilege. Like I can say the same.
1: So, you know, what what changed my mind was Kizzy Corbett. We invited her here. She's actually a friend. We invited her here. Well, virtually invited her here to give a talk. And we, the way she presented the data, it was clear. I was like, okay, I, I mean, I can't say anything, right? This is this is and but also because I trust her, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just because so we're seeing all these different people talk about different things on social media, but who can you trust? Mm-hmm. And so we've learned that that's what the community wants is a reliable and trusted source.
0: Yes. And there's so much misinformation that was circulating. Mm-hmm.
1: And,
0: I mean, it, it's all understandable,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: It's not, and it's not people of color's fault, okay? right?
1: Right, exactly.
0: Um, what's one short-term goal that you have for yourself, and one long-term? And these can be career-related or personal, whatever you want to discuss.
1: Hmm. Short-term, I was um, t- in a group of people. Um, we had a Juneteenth event at Vanderbilt on Wednesday, and I and I was talking to a few people in the um, who who were participants of this. And I think the short-term, my short-term goal is to get a hobby, a fun hobby. Cause I feel like I'm boring rel- compared to other people, right? Cause they were doing like Taekwondo and kickboxing and all these kind of like really adventurous and kind of you know adrenaline <laughs> stimulating things. And I was like, oh yeah, I don't mind. I watch TV, I don't know, what, <laughs> what, what do I say? Um, so I think a short term goal is to do something like that. Maybe not anything competitive, but just something fun um because you know they're like black belts brown belts or whatever and i'm just like oh, okay um so i think as a personal one i think that would be that would be good um i or maybe even better related to that is running a marathon because i've always been it's always been kind of on my list and i'm always like oh i'm not, I'm not gonna do it and i have friends who do who go through different cities running marathons so i think that might be The thing. Long term, um, yeah, uh, that's a difficult one. I think um, uh, long term, I would like to contribute to an HBCU competing with a Harvard, right? Like I think that we have the talent, it's just spread around and not concentrated. So um, I would love to be part of or see that happen or contribute to that happening. Um, because I feel like it's such an untapped resource that can really, um, it's already a great powerhouse, but it can be a thousand times more.
0: Those are commendable goals. I like both.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs>
0: you. <laughs> so as a black man in your chosen field, what has your experience been like so far?
1: So I have, I just, I can only answer this question, well, I don't think this is a fair question for me in a sense, right? Because I'm at an HBCU, so the environment is different, but I've witnessed what happens at some of my colleagues at other institutions. Um, But I do have like, not an appointment, but part of a member, part of Vanderbilt. And so I've been able to kind of navigate both, right? I can be in the HBCU environment and I can be in a predominantly white institution. I would say mine has been I don't want to say normal. I don't think it's normal. I think about this because I've seen people who had different experiences than me. People who are smarter than me, have different, you know, so it's 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 an interesting dynamic in the sense that I feel like my energy I don't want to say protects me from different things, but bounces those things off or keeps them away from me, right? (laughs) Because I look for it. I'm like ready, like if something, I'm like, what? (laughs) But I can't say I've had any bad experiences as a Black man in terms of the current climate of what's happened with social injustice. I will say, I realize realize it's important. Being a Black man in the field, in science, has made I actually have a friend who I gave a talk in Brazil. I was there for a vacation and my friend asked me, she said, can you give a talk? Cause I went with her to work and she said, can you give a talk? You know, I was at NIH and they were like, oh, that's so great. You know, it's a very prestigious place. They were like, can you give a talk? I said, sure. So I was like, let me throw something together, blah, blah, blah. So there was a, a black guy graduate student in the audience and After I I finished my talk, one of the faculty members said, hey, can you speak to my graduate student? So I was like, sure, no problem. So we talked, blah, blah, blah. And he reminded me of this. So that's why I'm I'm telling a story. So years later, so we kept in contact. I mentored him. He wanted to do a postdoc in Europe. I said, no, come to the US, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, he's now faculty at Duke. So I like to think I have I, I take credit for that. I would but, yeah. <laughs> um, but um but what's interesting is he told me years after we met, he said, you were the first black scientist I met. And he's been in a prestigious institution for all that time. And I was the first and that's the same thing some American students can say, right? Like it's it's like where are they? But now we're such a big community and we know that we're out there. It's, it's beautiful. So anytime we go to conferences, we get together and find out, you know, we, we look at the black quotient, like who, who are all going to be there? <laughs> <laughs> so it's had a, it's had a, nothing but a positive impact overall. And I'm, i I, but I feel like I'm lucky because I've heard some people who've had challenges along the way.
0: I think that's good to hear. I'm so glad you shared that because I think sometimes the only stories that get highlighted are the very, very negative experiences that we go through. So the fact that you had such a pleasant time is wonderful.
1: Well, you know, I don't know. I mean I feel I feel a little way about that, right Because there's so many like like I said I think about this a lot, right. I think about why why I haven't had because I remember one of my friends is faculty he was faculty at Penn and someone challenged him. They wouldn't let him in the building because they wanted to see his ID. I was like, "I." that happened to me when I, was, I did a visiting professorship at Scripps. Mm-hmm. So the guy went into the building and I was right behind him. He tries to stop me and says, can I help you? I said, nope, and walked right past him.
0: <laughs> yes, we love it, yes.
1: I'm like, I'm looking for the opportunity for that. Like, seriously? <laughs> You gonna stop? I don't have to answer to you. <laughs> At all. Who are you? Who exactly. Are you? To me, that was the only one that seemed to be out of place that I can think of offhand.
0: Right. So along similar lines, I know you mentioned Kevin Gardner before, but is there any other notable black mentors that you've had either a positive or negative experience with?
1: Um, I think when you think of mentors, the the only real mentors that have been positive have been peer mentors, right? Because I think our friends push us. And I think that if we did not have that group in graduate school, I wouldn't have finished. (laughs) And it's important because I still look to those friends who were senior students. I still look to them for guidance today. And every time there's a conference that one of us goes to, we all try to get together. So we've made some really great friends. So I would say those are the probably the most notable ones, the, the ones of color. But I definitely have to give Jackie Tanaka a shout out as an ally, as a because she, she had vision, was it 20, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago when no one was talking about it. She was the only one. And she's been consistently doing it using her own time, funds, and everything. So you'd be amazed at how much this woman has done more than some people of color. Right. I think um, and even today, like, you know, I, I love the fact that I can always reach out to her and she's always thinking of me. And I think I think it's just been such a great experience to meet someone like that. So so I definitely have to put her in in, in that mix because I, I I definitely wouldn't be here without her.
0: Oh, yeah, Shout out to Jackie. Yes, yes. <laughs> shout out. <laughs> and peer mentors. I think peer, peer mentors are pretty underrated.
1: Definitely underrated. Underrated because it's like, I mean, even in graduate school, we went to happy hour to vent about graduate school. Right. And so, you know, we these are people who can commiserate and empathize and actually help get you through some of the difficult times.
0: So, what are three pieces of advice you'd give to someone who's interested in pursuing a similar path as you?
1: Well, one piece of advice I would give anyone is understand the process. I think we sometimes don't understand what it takes to do what we need to do. For example, sometimes uh, you know I, I sit on that admissions committee, and sometimes students don't understand how they're going to be evaluated. And so, I think going into any situation, you want to understand. Um, what that process will look like and how you'll be evaluated. Two be yourself, be your authentic self, I think is is an important part of that. I don't think I have any profound advice, but I think that definitely being yourself is an important part of the freedom and creativity to to do well. And I guess the third piece of advice is establish and build your support network. It's critically needed. Or excuse me, networks, right? Because you can use a different level of, of different dynamic from a different group of peers and and just people in general, family or whatever, um, because you don't need to go through this alone, but you definitely need to identify what that support is and 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 realize how to lean on it when necessary. Sorry, I, I would have to add one more, which is under this, know when to ask for help. I think we um, Black American, Black African American minorities just don't ask for help because we feel the stigma that has been perpetuated with us out not even asking for help or what we thought, you know, was was normal. People saw it as a weakness, right? But asking for help is a critically important piece.
0: Oh, yes, those all four pieces of advice were wonderful. Yeah.
1: thank <laughs> you.
0: Especially relate to the knowing when to ask for help. I think there also is a ideal that we put on ourselves. You know, we're, Black people are considered strong. We're always strong. We always have to be strong. So being vulnerable enough to ask for help, I think is something that a lot of us find very challenging, but it's yeah, so it is, necessary. It
1: is necessary. In, in the right environment, it's, you can do it, right? Like you have the support, blah, blah, blah you can do it. But it's it, it, it it's a process in and of itself.
0: Yeah, and it does go along with establishing your network, like you said, because if you don't have people who you feel comfortable enough to reaching out to for help, then you're not going to do it.
1: You're not not even going to consider it. No. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's. I need to take my own advice sometimes.
0: Oh, me too. (laughs) So that was actually all the questions i had for you today so if you're willing would you mind sharing either your social media information or your email or both for anyone who wants to reach out with questions
1: yes i don't mind sharing either go for it oh do i have to give it out now
0: if you want to, if you don't, if you don't remember, I'll include it in the episode's description. Okay.
1: <laughs> Put it in an episode. Like, like, oh, you want that now?
0: <laughs> Sorry, I didn't make that clear. No, it's fine. I'll make sure to include it and I'll run it by YouTube just to make sure everything is correct.
1: Great. Great. Great.
0: Perfect. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss? Anything else you'd like to add?
1: Nope. Thank you for this. I'm glad you're doing it. Um, it's been fun. <laughs>
0: Good. Well, thank you once again for taking the time to even talk to me today. I had so much fun with this conversation. It was such good. a delight.
1: Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Same here. And happy Friday. Happy Juneteenth.
0: Happy Juneteenth. Yes. We are recording this the Friday before the weekend of Juneteenth. Oh, I feel good. I feel good. Yes. <laughs> and there you have it, guys. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Black and Science. I want to thank Dr. Davis once again for taking the time to participate as a guest on the show. If you enjoyed listening to his story and want to continue following him on his science journey, make sure you check out all of his social media pages. I'll be sure to include his information in the episode's description. If you're interested in staying up to date with the latest Black and Science content, feel free to follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore B-I-S and on Instagram at Black and Science. Well, I'll be posting regular updates on the release of new episodes every other Monday. Lastly, if you're interested in participating as a guest on the show, just send me an email at bis thepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for all of your love and support, and I'll talk to you guys in the next one.